Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of January, and this is episode 236. Firstly, a happy new year to everybody, and I hope you've had a great break over the last few days. On today's podcast, I talked to Richard Hendry about his research into the 47th Division at Highwood in September 1916. Richard is an independent scholar and formerly a legal academic and management consultant. He spoke to me from his home in Cheshire. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the First World War and specifically the 47th Division at High Wood? Hi, Tom, and, and thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's fairly easy, the story with me. I'm, I've been retired about six years from a, from a life spent uh, practicing employment law and employee relations and before that as a law lecturer. And before life got in the way, uh, I were motivated to read and study quite a lot of history as a youngster, especially military history. And it's only really, I guess, in the last 15 years with with that retirement I've mentioned, but also with the, the children sort of growing up and moving away, that I've been able gradually to devote more time to this interest and, and, and perhaps more systematically, not least through my doing the Wolverhampton uh, MA in First World War Studies uh, 2015 for, for two or three years. Why the First World War? Well, there are various ways of, of rationalising that interest, I suppose. At a basic level, I plead guilty to the same fascination that I know gets distorted and misrepresented in many respects of the, the mud and chaos and, and horror of, of the Western Front uh, across the sea, but so close to home that, that grips many people I know. And uh, latterly, I, I could also say that although other wars are available, that the, the two that interest me most, American Civil War and, and the First World War, perhaps bookend uh, a period when the industrialization of warfare posed the greatest challenges to operational and tactical orthodoxies, which were built around the movements of large bodies of regimented men. Uh, and in the First World War's case, especially, forced massive changes in doctrine. But if we, if we put all that aside, the obvious starter for 10, I think, is that when I was young and a military history bug was beginning to stir, the First World War was a conflict that ended little more than, had ended little more than 50 years earlier and was within the fighting experience of, of many people still then living. Uh, and as for many other people, again, for me, that last aspect has a has a personal element, curiosity about the direct experiences of a now departed ancestor from whom too little information typically was often gleaned while they were alive. In my case, that was my paternal grandfather who joined up in spring 1915 and survived the war. And that really readily takes us to my focus on the 47th Division. He'd enlisted with the London Regiment in the 25th London Cyclist Battalion, but he then became associated with the 47th via his subsequent transfer to the Division Cyclist Company, and then through a three-month attachment to the 19th St Pancras Battalion of the London Regiment, part of the division, in summer 1916. Although he actually left a few weeks before the September attack at High Wood, which we're going to be talking about, in order to become part of the relatively new 4th Corps Cyclist Battalion, where he spent the rest of the war. High Wood? High Wood? Well, it's unavoidable anyway if you're getting to know the 47th. As for better or worse, it's one of its defining moments. But there is something else about Highwood that began to nag at me, I think, particularly after I started the MA at Wolverhampton and, and subsequently became a subject of, of my dissertation a couple of years later. And that's the, the historiography on that particular uh, day or period. Uh, it's this, that the, while containing some recognition of the division's work at Highwood, many of the secondary sources through time through a century, have seemed rather dismissive or grudging uh, about it and to imply that the 47th Division on the 15th of September succeeded in spite of it. And it was that characterization, if you will, that kind of drew me in even farther. 
So we're going to focus on the 47th Division at Highwood in September 1916, as you have already indicated. But could we start with what the division was doing before then? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure many listeners will already know the 47th was composed entirely of, of first-line battalions from the Holy Territorial uh, London Regiment. Um, it was intact in, in situ uh, when war broke out. In fact, its summer training camps were, were abandoned uh, as, as August 1914 hit. Um, and following six months in central force doing home defence, but also clearly training on trench digging and other preparatory measures for a move overseas, it landed in France in March 15. It was actually the, the second wholly TF formation, territorial formation, to be dispatched to the Western Front. It was just beaten by the 46th. Um, of course, some individual battalions of the London Regiment had, had, had gone over earlier. For instance, the London Scottish uh, battle honours uh, in 1914-15 in, 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 uh, in the Ypres salient, but that's another matter. Now, organisationally, as it went over, the division was, was pretty well placed when it embarked. It, uniquely for a territorial formation, it, its pre-war establishment already allowed for the uh, appointment of, or uh, yes, the office of General Staff Officer Grade One. So it was, uh, if you like, ramped up from that point of view. And on a broader level, the staff function was was uh, easily, relatively easily uh, resourced because uh, the division had battalions both from the civil service and uh, that's the civil service rifles and the post office rifles, post office. So uh, administratively, it was well set. Command-wise, it also was pretty stable, although two of its three brigadiers, and they were commanding what we'll be referring to, what would soon become 140, 141 and 142 brigades, uh, although two of those were relatively recent appointments in the late autumn of 14, um, there was a reassuring stability at battalion level. Eight of the 12 battalion COs had been in post since before the declaration of war. And... As to its commanding officer, or GOC, Major General Horace St. Ledger Barter, he'd been at the helm himself since August 14. Now, he was he was technically a dugout because he'd retired, I think, from uh, brigade command in the Indian Army about a, about a year before the outbreak of war. So he's what they called a, a dugout. But he did quickly show himself to be a robust advocate for the, for the division's interests on various matters, uh, certainly while they were uh, uh, in the UK still. And when they first went over, things like the quality of recruits and drafts, uh, artillery provision, other resourcing matters. They trained, obviously, they were split up, the, the division in battalions and trained with other units that were more seasoned on the Western Front. There was some ambivalence or concern about uh, a lackadaisical attitude, which probably wasn't wholly unknown uh, for territorial uh, bodies at that, at that time. But nevertheless, the 47th was deemed ready to go into the line by May 1915, so fairly quick, albeit only initially for a sort of watching, holding role, if you will, at uh, Obers Ridge and then in the initial phases of its sequel at the Battle of Festubert. Now, Festubert in its last knockings did ultimately provide the, the division with its first experiences of attack. And despite early success in taking an objective of, of heavy casualties, it lost around 1,000 uh, in advancing just 400 yards on a 1,000 on yard front. But Festubert was really uh, the, the dress rehearsal, if you will. It wasn't until late September 15 at the Battle of Luce that the formation came to take a leading role in what was by that year's standards at least a, a major set piece battle, albeit uh, it was a costly failure overall. Now, there, uh, on the extreme right of the First Army and, and next to the French, who wouldn't attack until some hours later, the division was given a, a pretty serious challenge. It had not only, as I just said, with the French not, not going till later, to protect its own right side as it advanced down a shallow valley towards the fortified village of Lus, but then it had to turn south and provide continuing cover for the rest of First Army by securing a line between two sizable spoil heaps or crassiers, they're, they're known. You, you find differing interpretations of this. There is, I think, I forget whether it was Corps or Army uh, uh, general st uh, staff, but Montgomery uh, took the view that the 47th had a, an easier challenge here 
uh, because it had less distance to go. But that rather disregards these these other facets of what was a, a very tricky manoeuvre. And uh, it certainly got plaudits for the fact that within three hours or so of zero, it, the objectives, all its objectives were broadly attained. And despite German counterattacks and some confusion with units of the neighbouring 15th Division, uh, they were held for several days until, of course, the battle itself fizzled out on a, on a broader front. So you could say a, a good 1915, I suppose, if there's ever such thing as a good good thing in, in, in this war. Um, it's probably the most ineffectual year for the BEF generally, but the 47th had done OK. Even then, before High Wood, the trajectory was, was not wholly upward because the next year, in late May 16, at Vimy Ridge, the division was on the receiving end of a ferocious German attack and had to give ground. Now, despite brave attempts uh, to take back that ground, uh, it largely failed, but they were undoubtedly uh, uh, serious attempts. Uh, there were seven military crosses awarded uh, in relation to one uh, engagement in a single battalion, which is uh, a fairly significant uh, block of uh, honours. But casualties for three days there exceeding what was a, predominantly a defensive and counter-attack manoeuvre exceeded 2,000 uh, men. So. As summer 16 drew to a close, the division had a at least reasonable, I would say, fighting record. So High Wood. Now, there's no specific named battle of High Wood that appears in the record of engagements in this sort of nomenclature as such as the Battle of Luce. So tell us a little about it. Where is it? What is it or was it? And how did it become significant to the BEF during 1916? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're looking very sort of generalised terms at the southern part of the British British sector of, of, of the Somme front. Uh, Highwood is itself is located on the low Flair Ridge within a, a triangle formed by the villages of Flair itself, Martin Puich and Longueval. Uh, and it faces on its broadest front, southwest across a shallow valley, looking back towards the Byzantin Ridge, uh, where Byzantin Le, Le Petit sit, sits in particular. Now, as, as we normally understand the term now, and compared with its unmissable, rather majestic and foreboding appearance today, high wood barely resembled a wood at all in, in mid-September 1916. It was composed of burnt, ravaged ground. One, one witness, I think, described its appearance and consistency as being like cocoa powder. And that was spattered with shattered tree stumps, shell holes, deep crevices and concealed trenches and strong points. And most of those features or scars, whatever you want to call them, were, were, were the result of something like eight almost completely unsuccessful attempts to take the wood by Rawlinson's Fourth Army, after the 1st of July failure to achieve anything like the original objectives. Perhaps the best known of the attacks is the one uh, on the 14th of July, so within two weeks of the start of the Somme campaign, where the, the Indian cavalry were, were involved. That's, that's often talked about. But the last two efforts preceding uh, what was going to happen on the 15th of September were themselves in September, earlier in the month, and each of those two had produced a mine crater uh, a deep pipe um, insertion with explosion. And, and the second had overlapped with the, and enlarged its predecessor to create a, a, a new feature on the landscape, a, a sort of a redoubt which the, develop, uh, the Germans developed uh, quite significantly and used to their advantage. Now, if you, if you go back through the history of these attempts, and I'm not going to, to, to drag you through the detail, but the long and short of it is that many of them had been relatively narrow front attacks, which had ultimately been balked by con concentrated or enfilade fire. Why all this interest in high wood is a, is a legitimate question. It's a, it's a patch, not even of trees. Why on earth are we, are we that bothered? Well, the reason for all these, these British forays in, in summer 16 was that to exploit the limited progress as had been made on the Somme in early July and to achieve the deemed strategic imperative of pushing through towards Bapong, high wood had to be controlled and taken. That's for two reasons. Firstly, because of its inherent strength. Uh, and one thing I haven't mentioned is that the Germans had built uh, the, or extended the formidable switch line, as it was called, uh, through the sort of rear portion of the wood. 
But the other reason is quite simply that because of its position and relative height in the landscape, it permitted too extensive observations of British movements for a considerable distance. So it had to be taken before there could be any serious move uh, on on a broader broader front. What the two earlier September uh, attacks had done that I've mentioned, they had at least managed to grab a precarious toehold in the south southwestern third of, of Highwood. And along with more successful British work to the east, which had belatedly secured many of the broad initial objectives of, of the 1st of July, there was a jumping off point created, uh, something that would allow for the long plan push towards Bapol. And for that to happen, the proper taking of high wood would ultimately have to be factored. So high wood was, if you like, to come within the scope of a a much bigger plan. It was something like an eight mile or nine mile wide front attack involving nine infantry divisions of Fourth Army, plus I think three from Reserve Army. And this is the phase of the Somme campaign that was later to become termed the Battle of Flair Coslet. So the assault on Highwood by the 47th Division was part of this wider offensive operation that you've referred to already, the Battle of Flair's Corselet, excuse my pronunciation. So tell us about the planning for this and how it accommodated the thorny problem of Highwood. Well, if we, if we go to the top, the, the planning at the top level uh, had, for, for Flair Corselet had seriously, uh, the thoughts had obviously been running throughout the the since the 1st of July, but they seriously or formally commenced about four or five weeks before the attack that we're going to, to talk about. Now, now think about that. So we're talking, let's say, uh, sort of early, mid-August. That is before the last three, as it happens, of the earlier eight attempts on high wood that I've all already mentioned. So already they're talking about this, this broader attack. And the story of the... the the top level planning is is frankly one of operational or tactical tension between Haig and Rawlinson that is overlaid with the distraction of accommodating the tank, which was, of course, to make its worldwide debut at the Battle of Flair, of course, Now, the tank was one of actually two novelties in the battle um, in, in terms of uh, conducting war. Um, it was also the first battle at which the rolling or creeping barrage would be used by the artillery in its full form. And I'll touch on that again later as well. If I come back to the Haig-Rawlinson tension or debate, it can be loosely characterised as, as one where you have the breakthrough seeker, not quite the thruster of, of uh, a goth or a, 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 in some senses, but definitely one that was looking for the breakthrough, breakthrough that's Haig, against the the gradualist or the, the what was sometimes called bite and hold adherent and that that's very much Rawlinson and and of course the power dynamics were such that Haig and his personalities as well Haig intervened several times to have Rawlinson reshape or rewrite his plans for Flair Corslet because Haig viewed them as too cautious and and those sort of challenges and urgings continued until only a couple of days before zero date uh, Haig famously said to Rawlinson, you should, quote, take risks which would be unwise if the circumstances were less favourable to us, unquote. And the outcome of that was that Fourth Armies committed to a major advance in a single day. On, on some parts of the front, it was up to four or five thousand yards in depth. So what we're talking um, three miles, certainly, uh, and, and through four successive objectives within a space of little more than five hours. Now, Third Corps, which included 4th, 47th Division, wasn't required to do as much. It was essentially doing a, a defensive flank operation for, for the main thrust, most of which was farther south. Um, but it would still have, over about half the maximum distance I've just described, three objectives. Um, and so far as Highwood itself was concerned, this had a, a fundamental effect. It meant that Highwood was a mere way station, if you will. It was actually within the green line or first objective of Third Corps or specifically 47th Division, as it turned out. 
Now, this is bizarre because it's despite the ample evidence of the previous two months and these failed attempts uh, to, to take High Wood, and the fact that less than a fortnight earlier, in early September, Rawlinson still thought High Wood was sufficient an obstruction to warrant neutralising before any more ambitious and large-scale offensive was undertaken. And most recently, that would have been by the attack on the 8th, 9th of September by, by First Division, one of the two September attacks that I mentioned. So uh, the, there's, a, there's a, an inconsonance in what's, what's happening here. So that's the setting of Flecourse. And then you, you get back to the question of the tanks debut. Now, trust me, Highwood or Flecourse Let was no Combray. Few of the new machines were available, the Mark 1s. Um, I forget the total number, 30-something, I think 30-something across the, the entire front. It's suffice to say it was penny packets, so-called distribution amongst the different corps and formation. Oh, the 47th ultimately ended up with just four. So this very limited uh, allocation, plus the primitive and unreliable mechanics of the, the tanks, which are well documented, meant that their ability to influence things significantly on the battlefield should perhaps always have been in doubt. But nevertheless, they became a distraction and, and in some senses almost became a centrepiece, which, which chewed up discussion and planning time and, and caused considerable confusion. Um, Rawlinson, understandably, had no experience of tanks in battle. He couldn't have done. Uh, he'd, he'd attended in late August the demo at uh, Saint-Riquier, uh, which is, I think, uh, further back, which was the tanks proving or testing ground in, in France. But nevertheless, and, and despite expressing a rather bizarre early notion that he thought they could be used at night to confuse the Germans, uh, well, they'd have certainly confused the Germans, but I think they probably would have confused everybody else as well. It's on the record that, Latterly, at least, as we approach Flecourcelet, he, he, he did acknowledge that the use of tanks was no easy matter. So he, he'd come round. But his management style, if I can use that expression, was rather bizarre because he still chose to exhibit a remarkably hands-off approach regarding the deployment of the tanks. He left it, actually, to Pulteney, who was the Third Corps commander, to determine how they would be used by the Corps and, of course, by the 47th that I would. Pulteney, or Putty as he was known, uh, it, it's rather strange. He, he, he'd actually made his own, submitted his own entry for the bizarre suggestions for tanks competition by uh, suggesting in Rawlinson's presence that the tanks would be able to cut through Highwood easily because of the cover Highwood afforded. Well, as we've just said, there was no cover at Highwood. There was very little approximating even to a tree or a branch or a leaf. So where he thought the cover was coming from, goodness knows. But in any event, he was allowed to go on a frolic of his own with his uh, the divisions within his corps. He overrode the advice of, of Barter and senior tank commanders and insisted that the tanks went straight into the shattered environment of the wood rather than, as Barter and the tank commanders had recommended, down the ravaged flanks. And that intervention was itself to lead to other decisions, which we'll discuss in a minute, which had their own tactical consequences. So was the 47th Division specifically selected for the attack on Highwood, or at least when it was allocated, or, or at least when was it allocated to Highwood? Well, there's, there's no overt conclusive evidence on the 47th being specifically selected for Highwood in the sense of being considered beforehand as... Uh, especially needed or suited for the job. And I suppose if you roll back again, and I'll keep coming back to this point, it's not surprising, really. There were attempts by others uh, still going on well into September to take Highwood themselves on, on, on behalf of Fourth Army. So it's, it's, it's not surprising we don't find that call for the 47th. Uh, scribbled down somewhere or, or typed out in orders. It's it's frankly difficult even to identify when it was first allocated Highwood. Um, uh, outwardly, formally, uh, you can you can look at Third Corps Operational Order One Two One of the sixth of September, which said the division would take over the Highwood sector, and and it did that around about or started to do that around five days later, the eleventh, and I think on the twelfth, Operational Order One Two Six said. These are your objectives, uh, 47th Division, for the attack on the 15th of September. But that's about as far as you get. But, in, but 
at another level, you, you almost end up uh, thinking differently because the training regime for the 47th Division for several weeks before the 15th of September at Flair Corselet suggests that Barter had either been told or had inferred well in advance of that date that the division would be centred on High Wood. Now, presumably, any such understanding of that type on Barter's part must have been on a, on a contingent basis, because back to the same point again, as late as the end of September's first week, attempts were still being made to seize High, high Wood in its own right by, by other divisions. So it can't have been a we're definitely going to need the, you know, have the 47th there. It might well have folded to the first division earlier in, in September. It didn't. So the 47th ended up going in there on the 11th and 12th. So how did the division plan and prepare for its designated role? Well, in some respects, pretty well, it seems. Um, by mid-August, certainly the, the, the end of the third week, after, a, I think, about a week's transit from the Arasvimi area, and in readiness for, for joining the Corps formally on the 22nd of August. It was in 4th Army's training area around uh, Abbeville, and then uh, then moved in slightly closer towards Albert. And it was already, in that period, undertaking focused training. Um, this sort of relative stability of location for, for several weeks enabled each brigade to train, uh, by my analysis uh, of the diaries, in some form on a minimum of something like 75% of the days that were available for training. I'm, I'm largely categorising unavailable days as, as those involving significant transit or, or movement, although you do find the odd Sunday cut out for church parade and, and games kind of thing. But it, that for about six-week period, so from the beginning of August, that, that's what you're looking at. Something like 75% of the days available were used by any given brigade. And if you if you break that down and say, I think there were 35, just up 37 available days for training, on 22 of them, all three brigades were uh, involved in some form. Now that record of preparation, if you will, generally bore favor favorable comparison with the units who would be the 47th neighbors for the 15th of September attack. That's 149 Brigade from 50th Division uh, on the left and the 2nd New Zealand Brigade on, on the right. Um, for the best part of a month, certainly from the probably about the first week of August onwards, wood fighting practice is a commonplace aspect of training mentioned in the, in the diaries. Whereas if you look at the diaries of those neighbours that I've just mentioned, it gets relatively scant reference. And... That would suggest, because High Wood was the only wood of consequence on Third Corps' front, that some kind of view was taken, yes, the 47th are going to be geared up for this particular activity at High Wood. And allied to that, there is an increasing mention of the use of terrain marked out to replicate the features and defences of High Wood in the diaries as well. That, that grows as you go along. And again, that supports the notion that the 47th were undergoing, if not specialised, certainly focused training. Uh, alongside that, there was quite a lot of reconnoitering respect and, and good divisional work um, on intelligence, although uh, that stands in stark contrast to uh, Fourth Army and GHQ intelligence, which seemed to spend most of its time talking about the supposedly low morale of the, the, the Germans, which uh, I think proved to be anything but. So from that point of view, so far so good. But then we have to get to the omissions and oversights in the 47th preparation. And there are a few. First of all, if you if you go to the lead battalions that were going to or the first wave battalions that were going to be used uh, on the 15th of September, we know that they were to be the 17th Battalion Poplars and the 18th London Irish, both from 141 Brigade on the left, who were responsible, broadly speaking, for about two thirds of the wood. And on the right, from 140 Brigade, the 7th City of London and the 15th Civil Service Rifles. Uh, that their their sector actually extended into land outside the uh, wood, which we'll return to later. And yet, if you look at the divisional and brigade diaries for the lead up period of through from August into September, when it reports cross battalion exercises, and there were many, it ne they never record any of these pairings in practice. Almost anything but 
it's almost like pick and mix with with, with, the, with the training it seems you then get back to tanks uh, this distraction which proved to be uh, a little bit more um, many of the infantry's other ranks were or should have been aware that tanks would accompany them. And I think it's on record that some had seen them in the back areas parked up when, when they'd been moving up uh, in the last few days uh, before the 15th of September. But despite Haig's or GHQ's aspiration for combined infantry track exercise, tank exercises, I should say, in early August, none had proved feasible. The infantry had not worked at all on the practice pitch with tanks. That's a, a, just a, a, an issue with the late arrival of tanks and the, and the movements of, of, of the division. Now, that might not worry you too much if you take my point that the tanks likely weren't going to influence the attack too much. This was almost a, a sort of experiment, a lab for tanks, this, this, uh, this battle, uh, even though uh, they were meant to be of, of special uh, importance when you were attacking a strong point riddled location like High Wood, we, we might have been fairly relaxed about it. But in another respect, the integration of the tank went beyond being a distraction to become a disruption. And we might as well deal with it right now and here. And here we now dip into what was, of course, a, a, another new interrelationship, that between tanks and artillery as we feel our way towards a combined arms battle. Rawlinson determined to leave uh, a 100-yard-wide barrage-free lane where tra tanks could advance. And he thought this was excellent idea as protection against shrapnel for the tanks. Um, tanks actually wouldn't have been affected by shrapnel at all. Um, but its general effect, of course, was to, to deprive those elements of infantry who would be accompanying the tanks coming behind them of any protection uh, of, of a barrage because there's this barrage free lane to, to protect the tank. And if that wasn't bad enough, the effect was going to be exacerbated by 47th's decision to, uh, you recall Pulteney had said, you're going to take the tanks into the wood itself. 47th decided, well, we're going to have them go in at spread across the woods frontage, perhaps not a wholly illogical uh, view, but it, of course it created four barrage free lanes, which meant more infantry uh, unprotected by a barrage uh, than, than might otherwise be the case. Uh, as one commentator, I think it might have been prior, uh, prior and yes, I'm not sure. Anyway, in one place, uh, it's suggested that this has meant that artillery was replaced, quote, by a substitute of doubtful efficacy, namely the tank. Highly doubtful. Now, that's fine. Then we turn to the balance between artillery and infantry. We might as well link the triangle up. The proximity of the opposing lines uh, on the southwestern edge side of Highwood meant that the planned barrage starting line, the creeping barrage starting line, was arranged to fall 100 yards behind the German front positions. The alternative, of course, might turn, and this had been used in the preliminary bombardment of some three days which had preceded it, but the, the alternative might have been to withdraw the British front line units uh, a little bit from, from their front um, to, to give that zone of protection for them. Now, why that wasn't done is not wholly clear. Probably the best bet is that um, that would have compromised the speed of the initial advance. And bear in mind, this whole flare course plan was based on the speed of the, the thrust going deep and, and, and getting there quickly. Um, and particularly the case where 141 Brigade would already be starting some 300 yards behind its neighbour, 149 Brigade, 50th Division. Um, so that might be the explanation. It's interesting, though, that, that 141 Brigade, it was, it, was, it was acknowledged and noticed um, by 4th Army and 3rd Corps that there was this disparity in the starting lines, 300 yards. Um, 141 Brigade was only given five minutes extra to get to the first objective. Um, as compared with 149 Brigade. So that that 300 yards going towards a fortified emplacement like High Wood in advance was deemed only to warrant an extra five minutes. But there we go. So the two artillery alterations that we've talked about here effectively negated what were some other rather good points about the artillery. The firepower intensity was twice that of the 1st of July. The first two objectives for Flair Corselet on the 15th of September were with, both within the range of the guns' uh, initial positions. So 
if I summarise, confronted by the challenge that 4th Army accepted from Hague, the 47th Infantry in itself had a fairly good rounded grounding for the, for the attack. But the uncertainties and a bit of alliteration here, dynamics, dickerings and ditherings of Hague, Rawlinson, Pulteney and Barter meant that the planning for the combined arm, arms effort spawned decisions on tactical innovations, tactical compromises that detracted from the work put into preparing the infantry. The attack on the 15th of September, the attack on the 15th of September. When did it start? How long did it last? And what happened? And centrally, how did the division manage to take the wood after so many failures by 4th Army in the preceding weeks? Well, to, defo- to follow this, this three-day preliminary bombardment, zero hour on the, 3rd of se- 4th of the 15th of September was officially 6.20am. Uh, and I, I say officially advisedly, uh, uh, more of that in, in a minute. High Wood was under full control of the 47th Division within about six hours. Now, that, that sounds good, almost clinical, if put in those uh, rather bold terms, except when one realises that the wood was meant to be subdued within about 45 minutes and that by 8.30am, the division's third objective, and in this case, final objective, was meant to have been under attack with a view to its capture by around midday. So... This was a hugely slowed an operation. As to what went wrong, well, we've sort of touched on some of the, in planning on some of the issues, but there are two on-the-day events that compounded those planning errors in order to further impair the efficiency of the, the initial attack. The first one, and we're back to zero hour here, is that you don't find too much mention of it, perhaps for obvious reasons, but the civil service rifles who were... The, the left of 140 Brigade. Now, 140 Brigade was on the right of the, of the division. So this was the, the, the battalion that uh, was towards the centre of the divisional line and kind of straddled the, uh, the wood. Part of it was going into the wood. Part of it was going down the, the outside of it on, on, on the right-hand side. But the, the civil service rifles jumped the gun on zero hour by as much as 30 minutes. Um, now, <laughs> that not too surprisingly, meant that surprise was forfeited generally, in, including for the tanks, of course, who were meant to be leading the advancing infantry. They were they were rather exposed. We'll come back to them briefly in a minute. So that's the first thing. There was a jumping of the gun, which meant the German defenders were awake and alert if ever they were asleep. Secondly, you'll remember the starting line of the barrage had been put 100 yards behind the German front positions. Well, somebody managed to get the coordinates wrong for the agreed starting line. So the shells landed, started landing even farther back. So even more German forward positions were untroubled uh, by the, by the barrage um, uh, as well, of course, forewarned by the civil service rifles uh, jumping of the gun. The result predictably was pretty stiff resistance from the German troops, they're predominantly two regiments of the 3rd Bavarian Division, that they were no slouches. I mean, there's a, a late in the war, the American uh, command produced an assessment of German divisions. Um, and if you look at that, the 3rd Bavarians uh, have a pretty good reputation. Although it has to be said, at the time the attack uh, hit, they were sort of undergoing uh, reliefs. So they shouldn't perhaps have been as well set up as they were. But they put up firm, firm resistance and they were well supported then by, by their own artillery. Predictably, then, that caused a logjam in high wood as the two first wave battalions, particularly of 141 Brigade, that's repeat again, the Poplars, the 17th and the London Irish, the 18th, were held up and then piling in behind them, joined by the second wave, the St Pancras 19th Battalion and the Blackheath and Woolwich 20th. Throw into the mix elements of the civil service rifles, the bit that were due to go through the wood from 140 Brigade. There were the best part of five British battalions jammed in the wood, fighting with the German defenders hand to hand in many cases and incurring heavy casualties. So the last of your questions just now will deal with it. If, with this rather inauspicious start to the day's proceedings and the resulting chaos, how on earth did Highwood finally get taken on this occasion. The answer lies 
initially on the right or the south southeast side of, of High Wood. Um, but before I get there, just just to deal with the flanks, the flanks of the 47th Division in a formal sense first, there was some support for the 47th Division from flanking units or formations. But almost by definition, this had to be limited. The very speed of advance required by uh, along the front by by all from from all divisions by the by the flare course let plan meant that many troops from other units or formations had already moved forward quickly to farther objectives and so were beyond the line with high wood as, as the problems uh, hit there. But if we get back now to, to 47th Division itself and more specifically 140, 140 Brigade, because it was responsible not just for high wood proper, but for this five or 600 yard channel down the ground outside it on the right, there was an opportunity here for its infantry relatively unpeded to achieve more control and exert more pressure on the wood itself, which was done. And even more crucially then, and predominantly using this more secure terrain, enter 140 Brigade's trench mortar battery. Its barrage, which lasted for about 15 minutes, 10 till 10.15 in the morning, apparently broke uh, its record. Somebody was keeping records of this kind of thing for concentrated fire at that time in the war. It, it managed to release 750 rounds in that 15 minutes into the wood, forced the German defenders backwards and out of the wood, or indeed to, to surrender, allowing 141 Brigade, which is the one mainly dealing with the wood in particular, to begin to break out of the log jam in which they, they were stuck. This was then followed up by a 30-minute bombardment by artillery from about 11 a.m. And that, now that will have had to have been a recalled uh, bombardment because, of course, the creeping barrage, as planned, of course, moved on well by then to break. Uh, uh, but, but the artillery bombardment from 11 for about 30 minutes broke all resistance and ultimately allowed full clearance of high wood within about another hour so certainly the messages about control of the wood were coming through by before 12 12 30. by the way just to clear it out um the tanks uh wholly ineffective one was immobilized in the wood the wood wasn't the biggest problem the others were hit by enemy fire or or ditched outside and indeed one uh, even managed to indulge in an episode of friendly fire on, on uh, one group of the, the 47th so uh, it wasn't a, a great day for the tanks at uh, a high wood uh, they did have limited success as people are probably aware in certain other parts of uh, flare course let i think it's uh, is it the tank uh, nicknamed Dinaken that uh, uh, is, is often photographed going down the high street of, of Flair on, uh, on the 15th of September? So, job done, I suppose we could say, for the 47th, or perhaps just, well, sort of. Uh, because even then, by the end of the 15th of September, the only continuous line held by the division was on its first objective, just outside uh, the wood and uh, on, on the switch line. Um, progress beyond there was largely confined to second wave battalions of 140 Brigade, most of which had gone up the outside of the wood to, to, to its right. Attempts later on the 15th to catch up were unsuccessful. Uh, most notable was a, a joint coincident attack uh, on the afternoon, early evening of the 15th of September by the 21st Battalion, 1st Surrey's. Now, that was under the temporary command of 140 Brigade. It was actually part of 142, but that uh, control had been ceded to 140 Brigade. And it was joined by the 24th Battalion, the Queens, which was under a similar temporary arrangement with 141 Brigade from 142. Now, the idea of this attack was they were going to push through to the second and third objectives, make up for, for lost time on the, on the 15th. And this largely failed at, at heavy cost. And frankly, uh, it's not surprising because the attack exhibited what was a, a fairly common problem for the 47th on the 15th of September, uh, at least partly caused by damage to phone cables due to enemy artillery fire and later, as, as the battle moved forward, by uh, British artillery and support units moving forward. But the problem was that with communication and liaison. It crops up several times in the diaries and indeed in the uh, divisional and, and battalion histories. Two battalions here, the 21st and the 24th, 
and their respective temporary brigades had difficulty synchronising the attack in the first place. And the 24th were actually given duff information by their by their brigade or the temporary brigade. They were told that uh, 50th Division or 149 Brigade on its left had already secured its proportion of the third objective. So trust us, lads, there won't be any German resistance from that quarter. Uh, the truth proved to be the anything but that. There was another horrible example of, of uh, disrupted communications occurred uh, with the 6th Battalion, the City of London, as well. Late on the 15th of September, they, they'd been part of the, uh, the, the second wave, and they, they mistakenly reported back that they had got as far as the flare line, which was an advance point, in fact, of the third objective. So this was great. They, they, they obviously were feeling pretty good with themselves. In fact, they'd made the mistake and they were some half a mile back from and about a quarter of a mile west in a place called, a, a little emplacement, German emplacement called the Cough Drop. Now, the report, for whatever reason, stayed uncorrected overnight. Nobody knows exactly why. But in the morning on the 16th, the 23rd County of London's were sent off to link up with the 6th Battalion, but in the wrong place. Not recognising the 6th Battalion as such because of the misinformation, it marched straight past the 6th at the cough drop and marched straight on, looking for the 6th further forward at the flare line, which, of course, was unsecured, had not been anywhere near taken, at which point many of the men of the 23rd Battalion just disappeared from the radar. And little is known, frankly, of their uh, fate. Uh, well, I think one can assume, but little was known at the time. The following days, just to complete the picture very quickly, were spent in less intensive or dramatic fashion, although still making attempts to uh, to catch up with neighbours and exploit pockets where groups or part units had advanced a bit further. Um, but nothing much, much was done. Um, 142 Brigade tried on the 18th of September to... Uh, uh, once it had got its command back of its battalions to attack the second objective on the Starfish line, initially successful but forced out after hand-to-hand -hand fighting and bombing by the Germans down the trenches. Not long after that, 140 Brigade sought to establish a stronger pres presence in the in the flare line, the third objective, but was again was a forced out on the on the 19th. And that's basically the end of the fight in and around High Wood in mid September 1916. With these various difficulties, shortfalls and delays surrounding the capture of Highwood, why do you nevertheless, why do you nevertheless, ne why do you nevertheless consider that historiography has been rather unfair in treating the whole sort of 47th adventure in Highwood as an odd success that you called it in, in your recent article in the Journal of the Society for Army Historical Research? Yeah, odd success. Perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, on reflection, if I'd said oddly treated success, it might better capture my my perception of the of the historic orographies approach. In any event, my my point is clearly not that the achievement of the forty seventh was perfect in planning, execution, or indeed consequence. That would be a quite absurd position to to take, given what I've, I've just described to you. But but rather my my argument is that it, it it's wrong for Highwood's domination by the forty seventh to be viewed disproportionately, at least through the through the prism of those broader aspects and outcomes. Yet that's the only plausible explanation for the historiography's predominant stance. I mean, yes, the fact of contribution to a successful broader operation, Flair's Corp, of course, that wasn't, but the fact of a contribution to a successful broader operation will always enhance the value of any one constituent part. But for Highwood on the 15th of September 1916, neither the overambition of the original Army Corps planning, nor the resultant delay and disappointment with Fourth Army's progress on the Somme, should be allowed to obscure, this is my position at least, the fact that the taking of High Wood itself was clearly a major fighting success by the division's infantry, achieved against very significant odds. Odds initially set by the history of, of previous attempts and extended by a combination of High Wood's situation and increased fortification over the months, the demands of higher co uh, command for Flair, Corslet, and admittedly, errors by 
the division's own commanders. So that, that's what I'm about. I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not saying that it, it contributed to uh, something that, that went as planned. It clearly did not. But in its own right, it was a remarkable success. So when the dust settled, what were the immediate consequences for the 47th Division? Right. Well, well, much of that story can be quickly told in headlines. It, it, it was relieved. I think I mentioned that uh, the Civil Service Rifles 140 Brigade were forced out of a, uh, a, a lodgment they got on, on, on the 19th of September. They couldn't hold on to it. The division overall was relieved late on, on the 19th, 19th of September, came out of line. And it was then down to, to other formations by the 22nd of September, belatedly to bring the, the line in the high wood sector, if you like, up to the rest of the third core line, which was already pretty much at where it needed to be. Uh, on 15th September for the, uh, the, the planned final or thir third objective. So there was, if you like, a big dent where High Wood was, uh, indent, which had to be corrected. And that was done by, uh, by other divisions. The 47th actually came back into line reasonably quickly, early October. I think that, that, that they were out of line, actually, for, for 10 days. So late September, they arrived back. Early October, they went back to fight and took a second fortified location about two miles north-northeast of Highwood called Ocor Labay. Um, and then in the days thereafter, in early October, they experienced regrettably failure and again, very severe casualties, casualties in the first of Fourth Army's unsuccessful attempts to capture a third uh, fortification, German fortification, the notorious... Uh, Chalk Mound, which many uh, Western Front Association members certainly will be familiar with, called the Boot de Wallencourt. Um, now, the boot, for, for what it's worth, was never actually taken until the, 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 the Germans withdrew from it in, in 1918. So it was, it was no uh, disgrace uh, to have failed, but they were the first ones to try uh, and, and, and failed. By mid-October, the division had entrained for the salient where it spent the best part of the next 12 months. So it was a, a, a dalliance with the Somme that, that lasted a relatively brief period, and certainly in terms of fighting, lasted uh, less, probably three weeks, a little more than three weeks. But that, that last bit, uh, if I can just go back now to, to Highwood, if we go by wind back to Highwood, the casualties for the four fighting days at Highwood, 15th to the 18th of September, were 4,500 for the division. And that links to the most intriguing element of the sequel to that particular episode at Highwood, which is that even before the early October engagements that I've just mentioned, Barter had been sacked or in the army parlance of the time degummed. And via a standing commander, a guy called Greenlee, who, who took over for the Ocor Labay episode, he had been replaced by George Gorringe, who presided over the division for the remainder of the war with, with some uh, success uh, again. But that's a, that's another story. Now, the story of this degumming and, and replacement is, is a funny one. The, the, the official line plugged by Hay is that this was down to, I say plugged by Hay, it's certainly recorded by Hay. Um, it was down to Barter's mishandling of the division, using two brigades and incurring these heavy losses to take high wood when Haig said a couple of battalions should have sufficed. The alternative conspiracy theory, if you like, that was promulgated initially by a very vociferous and active barter post-war, uh, but has since been adopted by most of the minority of historians who've mentioned the affair, is that barter was the sacrificial lamb. He was offered up to obscure Poulton, Pulteney's insistence on pushing tanks through high wood and the knock-on effects that that instruction uh, might well have had. Now, breaking it down is not easy to unravel. You never find the smoking gun as such, suffice to say. But uh, let's just try to, to work it through. Pulteney, the Third Corps commander, he, he was actually described by one staff subordinate uh, as, quote, the most completely ignorant general I served. And, and I think he carried on to say, and that is saying something. Now, Pulteney clearly had a personal interest in avoiding too much attention on certain aspects of his high-handed third, third Corps command at, 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 at Flair Corselet. But the decision to remove Barter cannot have been his alone. Certainly, he, he would have been the, the initiator of it, the instigator of it, but it certainly would have at least required Rawlinson's acquiescence. 
And while Rawlinson is on record in his diaries as having correspondence, as having reservations about barter back in 1915, he had also clearly expressed scepticism about Pulteney's qualities as late as summer 1916. So it's difficult to make the case that um, Rawlinson, at least, in Rawlinson's case, at least, there would have been some partiality or a rush to judgment regarding Barter on, on this particular thing, especially as if you think about it, at the time Barter was removed in late September, while the 47th Division were out of line, it was known, or at least highly likely, that the 47th would be used again to fight within little more than a fortnight. So why on earth would you remove the commanding officer uh, of a division uh, uh, just for, for petty personal reasons? So it seems seems unlikely in that sense. My, my view is that to the extent you put a focus on the, the heavy cost of taking high wood, and fine, it was a, was heavy cost, there was still, so to speak, plenty of barrage left even after Rawlinson's limitations. And furthermore, there was, in the old American expression, plenty of blame to go around. Uh, and, and most of that resided with Barter. I'm, I'm running contrary to, to, to most historians' view, I think, here. But whether directly or as senior manager of the division vicariously, he had to take responsibility for a number of difficulties. Arguably, going back not as far as as far as not pressing the use of tanks debate as, as hard as he could, if not with Pulteney alone, then when he was also given access to Rawlinson, he seemed to pass up opportunities to push his view that the tanks should not go into the wood. Now, that's less for its own sake, but, but more for the consequences which going into the wood uh, perhaps uh, caused in, in other respects. Then there's, even though Pulteney insisted on putting the tanks through the wood and that didn't help, it was Barter's decision to put them on effectively separate routes and increase the number of barrage-free zones. Another problem, the initial barrage line plan, putting it 100 yards behind, that was a divisional artillery decision. And the subsequent miscalculation of coordinates was a divisional artillery error. The civil surface rifles jumping of the zero-hour gun. Well, Barter probably had no direct control of that over that when it happened, but he's the boss. He has to carry the can in, in, in that sense. And I suppose on, on a slightly more sort of macro point, arguably the, the, the attack on high wood was over frontal and, and, and was compounded by a lack of significant divisional reserves for, for, for stronger backup and work, particularly round the, the sides. Because at Barter's election, of course, 142 Brigade had been dispersed to the other brigades already and were already caught up in the log jam in the wood. So there was nothing available to... Uh, well, he, he actually took 142 Brigade off uh, the command of, of, of the, the, uh, the, the brigade itself and put dispersed them to the other two brigades for, for 48 hours. They didn't come back until the 17th of September to 142 Brigade, um, which in itself possibly meant that in the later stages of that whole period, uh, commanding the resuming command of 142 Brigade might not have been too easy. So there are a number of things, I think, that say Barter. Even if Pulteney had a hostile predisposition to Barter and or was desperate to conceal his own deficiency, and even regardless of Barter's previous, care, and caring's the wrong word, but um, supportive record and for, for, on behalf of the division, it remains difficult to press home a strong case that Barter was wrongly put at the head of the queue for blame. And that's it. That's the story of the 47th. I would, as I see it, anyway. So obviously, beyond your article, is there any other publications that people should consider about Flair's Corselet, Highwood, and the 47th Division? Yeah, there's several, depending on the how much you want to zone in or zone out. I mean, I, I would have to say that, that the official history is 1916, volume two. One should never pass by without without mentioning that. Obviously, that on Highwood itself, uh, there are two publications, both by Pen and Sword, and probably you can pick them up um, on, on second hand as, as well. Uh, Terry Norman, the hell they called Highwood, and Malcolm Harrison simply called High Wood. Uh, um, both of those, of course, are covering the history of the wood 
through the war and therefore it's the various efforts on it through 1916. They're not, not focusing on the 47th per se. Uh, the, the 47th, the good, very good history written in the 20s by Maud, the hit is simply called the history of the 47th London Division, 1914 to 1919. I think you can download that for free somewhere, uh, but it's a facsimile is pro uh, produced by Naval and Military Press. Anyway, that's, that's good. Again, covers the whole war, of course. Um, on Flair Corselet, um, three Somme publications, I think, commend themselves. Prior and Wilson, the Somme, Philpot, Bloody Victory, and Gary Sheffield's uh, quite thin volume, the, the, the Somme. They're, they're all good in different respects in covering Flair Corselet, if, if not uh, High Wood per se. So that's about it. Richard, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, and I, I hope I've enjoyed it. hope uh, our listeners You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>